Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Candace, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Connect Education Workshop. And today's program is Managing Aches and Pains and Treatment Side Effects from Myeloproliferative Neoplasms, or MPN. And this is part two of a two-part, of a three-part series on living with, with MPN. And um, so we're really delighted to have you all on the call today. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, and as well as the MPN Education Foundation, the MPN Research Foundation, and the MPN Coalition. And we really want to thank them for their support of this program. And actually, um, we have on a call today because of your interest in the program, as well as all of these organizations helping to spread the word. We have about 352 participants on the call today. So there's a lot of you on the call. And you come from all over the United States, from all different parts of the United States. And we also have international participants from Australia, Canada, Egypt, South Africa, Turkey, and United Kingdom. So you really are really from all over the world. Now, and it's really, we're delighted that you've been spending the next hour with us. Um, now, this activity was supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Insight. And I really want to thank them for not only supporting today's program, but this entire three-part series, as well as another series we're doing on um, polycythemia vera, which you'll hear more about later in the program. But in other words, we are actually very um, delighted to be offering these programs. And they have been supporting these programs now for a number of years, so we're very grateful for this. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Gabriella Hobbs. Dr. Hobbs is, assist, is, is instructor, Harvard Medical School, and assistant in medicine, Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Hobbs is going to present a review of the treatments for PV, ET, and MF, and common treatment side effects, reducing complications of your myeloproliferative neoplasms, what you need to know, and key concerns to discuss with your doctor and healthcare team. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Hobbs. Hello, everyone. Um, thank you so much for that introduction. I am so happy for the opportunity to speak with you all today as part of this workshop. As mentioned, I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I practice at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, and I primarily focus on the care of patients with MPN. Today, I will start by talking about a few topics related to the treatment of myeloproliferative neoplasm. First, by reviewing the treatment. And I'd like to say that I'm going to talk about the three most common MPNs, which are polycythemia vera, or PV, essential thrombocytosis, or ET, and myelofibrosis, or MF. These diseases, or the MPNs, um, have some similarities in their biology and their clinical characteristics. And for those reasons, some of the treatments that are used for them are also similar. So one thing that these diseases share is a risk for developing blood clots. And for this reason, most patients with an MPN will be placed on a baby aspirin. Patients with very high blood counts, like very high platelets especially, or who have had issues with bleeding in the past may not always be placed on this therapy. In general, aspirin is a well-tolerated drug. However, some patients on aspirin may have an upset stomach or they may have some bleeding complications um, from being on an aspirin. Besides aspirin, patients with ET and PV may need additional medications to help them prevent developing blood clots. 
So patients that are candidates for additional therapy are generally patients that have had blood clots in the past or are over the age of 60. The most commonly used medication uh, to reduce the risk of blood clots in addition to aspirin is a medicine called hydroxyurea or hydria. Hydroxyurea is a type of chemotherapy that's taken as a pill. Hydria is usually easy to take, but some patients may experience fatigue, nausea, or an upset stomach. Sometimes hydroxyurea can cause ulcers in the legs, although this is pretty rare. Um, and hydroxyurea may increase the risk of certain types of uh, skin cancers. Some worry that taking hydroxyurea for a long period of time may increase the risk of developing acute leukemia. However, I should mention that this has really not been proven in clinical studies. Another drug that's used to control blood counts and prevent blood clots in patients with PV and UT is a drug called interferon, a brand name that's often used is also called Pegasus. Interferon is a subcutaneous injection that's a bit harder to tolerate than hydroxyurea. The reason for this is that interferon is a chemical that's made by our body when we have the flu, and that's why patients that are taking this drug may sometimes feel like they have flu-like symptoms. In addition, some patients may experience significant depression while on this medication, and some may develop autoimmune conditions. For these reasons, many providers and patients don't choose this drug as the first-line treatment option. It should be noted, however, that we don't yet know which drug is best to start with and which drug is better, whether it's interferon or hydroxyurea, and for this reason, there's a clinical trial as part of the Maloproliferative Disease Research Consortium that is trying to answer this question. Patients that are unable to take hydroxyurea or interferon and still have very high platelets may be candidates for a drug that's less commonly used. It's called anegrolide or agrolin. Some of the side effects of this medication include headaches, loose stools, and palpitation, or feeling like your heart is racing in your chest. Anegrolide is not generally chosen as a first light because it's harder to take. And in one study, it was shown to not work just as well as hydroxyurea. However, it does prevent blood clots as well. More recently, a medication called Jacopy, or the generic name is Ruxolitinib, was approved for use in patients with both myelofibrosis and polycythemia. Jacopy is what's called a JAK inhibitor. So what does that mean? Um, as I mentioned before, the MPNs share some things in common. One of the things is their genetics. Most patients with MPNs will have a mutation in a gene called JAK2. For example, greater than 95% of PV patients and about half of ET and MS patients have this mutation. The discovery of this mutation is really important for the field of MPN um, as it led to a lot of research and ultimately to the development and approval of the ruxolitinib or JAKAPI. There are also a few other JAK inhibitors that are currently being studied as well. I should mention one thing that I get asked often is that even if a patient doesn't have a JAK2 mutation, they will still respond to um, this drug. And although this seems like it wouldn't make sense, um, patients with MPN that don't have a JAK2 mutation still have other mutations that make them um, susceptible to, to this therapy. So JAKAFI was um, recently approved, as I mentioned. Um, in 2011, it was approved for myelofibrosis, and in 2014 for polycythemia vera based on its ability to reduce spleen size and improve symptoms. For patients with MS, Jacopy has also been found to lead to longer survival times in patients. We don't yet have enough data on polycythemia vera patients to know if this will be true for them as well. So how is Jacopy given? It's a pill, and it is taken twice a day. The most common side effects of this drug is low blood counts, um, but some patients may experience headaches, dizziness, and there may be an increased risk of some rare infections. Also, one thing to mention is that if for whatever reason a patient needs to come off of their Jacopy, 
Um, they shouldn't do that suddenly, as some patients can have a return of their symptoms and they can um, feel pretty ill if they stop at cold turkey. So you should talk to your doctor if you're thinking about stopping this drug. And generally, it's stopped um, over a period of a few days. In addition to Jacopy, for myelofibrosis, there are several other treatment options that have been around for a while. Uh, when it comes to anemia or low red blood cell count, there's a few drugs that can be used together or sometimes in combination. One of these drugs is um, androgens or testosterone-like drugs, the most common of which is Danazol. Other drugs are uh, under a category of drugs called immunomodulatory agents, which include drugs like thalidomide or lenalidomide. And both the androgens and the immunomodulatory agents can be given alone or initially with steroids. And the most common steroid that's prescribed is a drug called prednisone. So to go over some of the side effects, um, since Danazol is a testosterone-like agent, one of its side effects can include weight gain, acne, and hair growth in women. But in general, at the doses that it's given, it's pretty well tolerated. The immunomodulatory agents, uh, which I mentioned before, include drugs like thalidomide or lenalidomide. Side effects of these drugs include low blood counts, it can cause fatigue, neuropathy, which means numbness and tingling in the hands and feet, and some, in some cases, it can cause um, blood clots, and there's also been a concern that it may cause other types of cancers. But this is probably rare and um, not been demonstrated really for myofibrosis. Prednisone, like I mentioned, can be added to um, these therapies, and in general, it can cause weight gain um, and mood variability. So you can feel your highs are higher and your lows are lower, um, and it can also cause patients to have difficulty with sleep. So I generally recommend taking it in the morning. For patients that have low red blood counts, EPO, or an injection of a hormone called erythropoietin, can be given. And although this is an injection that's usually well tolerated, it is an injection, um, so it doesn't, but doesn't really have other side effects. Um, it works best in patients who don't really require a lot of blood transfusions. But one thing to keep in mind with this drug is that patients and, and doctors should be aware um, there's a concern that the spleen can increase while on this while on this drug. So that's something to look out for. In addition to these medications, some patients may be candidates or require something called a bone marrow transplant, also referred to as a stem cell transplant. And although this treatment is associated with a lot of complications and side effects, it cure patients. If you haven't discussed this with your doctor, I encourage you to just ask the question if he or she thinks that you may be a candidate for this therapy. And finally, clinical trials are always an option, and I encourage you to ask your doctor about participating in clinical trials if they haven't brought it up already. So that's all I'll talk about for medications, and now I'll move on to reducing the complications of your MPN, what you need to know and do. So I commonly get asked by patients with a new diagnosis of an MPN or really any disease, what can I do to make my illness better? And although it's not the case for every disease, it is definitely true of MPNs. Patients can play a big role in managing their disease. As I mentioned before, the most common complication of MPN is the development of blood clots. And patients can play a huge role in limiting the risk of this complication. Patients can do this by staying active and having a healthy diet. Being active, even if it's just something small like going for a short walk, can help in preventing blood clots. And it can also make patients feel better. Other things, if you know that you're going to be inactive for a long period of time, such as in a flight or sitting in your office all day, it's important to make sure to get up periodically and stay hydrated. 
these small measures can go a long way in preventing blood clots. Other things that are important is managing other, other um, comorbidities, such as diabetes, high cholesterol, high blood pressure. So if you have any of those issues, it is important to um, have a good relationship with your primary care doctor to make sure that these are well controlled, because these, too, can increase your risk of having blood clots. In addition, not smoking is very important, and I really can't emphasize this enough. Smoking increases the risk of blood clots in patients with MPN. In addition, smoking is associated with a long list of other um, medical issues, which I won't discuss. So in addition to leading a healthy lifestyle, medications and phlebotomy, in the case of polydipinia vera, play a role in reducing complications for MPN. So as I mentioned before, um, aspirin is commonly given, as this can improve symptoms and also reduce the risk of blood clots. Bloodletting or phlebotomy, like I mentioned before, in polycythemia has been proven as well to um, help prevent the risk of developing blood clots. And if needed, the drugs that I mentioned above, like hydroxyurea, below, um, before, sorry, like hydroxyurea, interferon, or Jacobi can also be given to prevent some complications from myeloproliferative neoplasm. An important aspect about living with a myeloproliferative neoplasm is remember to, taking, to take care of the rest of yourself. Sometimes I feel like between all the visits to the doctor um, for your MPN, you may re not realize or forget that you should also have a good relationship with your primary care doctor, someone that can take care of the rest of your medical problems, especially if you have any of the problems that I mentioned before that increase your risk of having blood clots. In addition, it's important to stay up to date with healthcare screening. And what I mean by that is staying up to date with colonoscopies, pap smears, mammograms, et cetera. There's some research that suggests that it's possible that having an MPN may slightly increase the risk of developing other cancers. And so for this reason, it's important to have all of this testing up to date. Another complication of MPN is potential for them to transform from PVNET to myelofibrosis or to acute leukemia. This is rare, but um, thankfully, but unfortunately, there's no uh, medication right now that we can give to prevent these complications from occurring. That being said, it is important to have a good relationship with your doctor and seeing him or her frequently so that these issues can be recognized early. Now I'll discuss key concerns and when should you should discuss these with your doctor and your healthcare team. The first thing I'd like to emphasize, which I sort of mentioned a little bit before, is that it is crucial to have a good and close relationship with your healthcare team so you feel comfortable discussing any concern or question that you may have with them. Although it's important to know about some of the symptoms to look out for so you can discuss with your doctors as soon as possible, I think it's just as important to realize that you don't have to be your own doctor and feel like you should know when you should and when you shouldn't seek help. If you have any question about anything, a new symptom or any concern, you should bring it up with your healthcare team right away. Remember, no question or concern is ever too small. Now, a few you things so, to look out for. Um, so sorry, yeah. That's okay. Um, am I out of time? <laughs> no, not at all. Okay. So just a few things to look out for. Um, patients with MPN can experience a variety of symptoms for different reasons, and these symptoms can change over time and can vary from patient to patient. These symptoms can significantly affect quality of life, and it's important, like I said before, that you feel comfortable discussing them with your providers because there's often things that we can do to make them better. 
For example, if you feel tired or depressed, these are common complications of MPN. This is something that you should discuss with your provider. If something feels different um, or you're concerned, you should bring this up to your doctor as well. Some things, for example, to look out for are signs of blood clots. So if you have swelling or redness or pain in one leg, new or unusual abdominal pain or chest pain or difficulty breathing, these are things definitely to bring up immediately. Or if your symptoms aren't well controlled, for example, let's say that you have a lot of itching as part of your disease and the medications you're taking aren't working, this is something to bring up to your doctors as well. And then new symptoms that we often ask about are night sweats, new weight loss, it's not intentional, worsening fatigue, the development of bone pain, abdominal pain, new and easy bruising or bleeding. Um, if you feel like you can't finish a meal or get full too quickly, these may be signs of having large spleen. So those are things also to talk to your doctor about. And you a good overview of some of the symptoms and treatments for your MPN, and I look forward to answering additional questions during the question and answer session. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Hobbs. That was really outstanding and really a wonderful overview, and which actually would take so much longer, but you somehow made it all understandable in the amount of time that you had and really covering all these important issues. And so thank you really for setting the whole stage for today's program. Thank you. And um, I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Christina Gowan. Dr. Gowan is a hematologist and medical oncologist, integrative medicine specialist, Salish Integrative Oncology Care Center, Research Collaborator at Mayo Clinic Cancer Center, Adjunct Faculty College of Health Promotion and Wellness, Arizona State University. And Dr. Gowan is going to address when to call your healthcare team between appointments, knowing which specific side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain to report to your doctor, keeping journal of side effects, symptoms, and discomfort and pain, know the warning signs of potential medical emergency and what to do, and how being more assertive may improve your care and quality of life. So she's going to continue to talk about really the, the, your interface with the healthcare team and all the issues that you want to bring up with them. This is such an important issue here. So it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Gowan. Well, thank you so much for that lovely introduction, Dr. Mesner, and thank you, Dr. Hobbs, for a really excellent review of the, of the myeloproliferative neoplasms, and it's so important to be educated. And it's not only essential to learn about the disease, but also how to function as best as you can within the healthcare system. Now, it can be really daunting to know when you should contact your healthcare team, and so as Dr. Mesner mentioned, I'd like to address these issues. In general, too much information is better than too little, and it's very important to identify a member within your healthcare team that you feel comfortable contacting. Now, this may be your primary hematologist your primary care provider, a nurse practitioner, a physician assistant, or perhaps a nurse that you've developed good rapport with. Some examples of appropriate times to call include questions and concerns in general regarding the therapy that you're on or your treatment plan. We would like to hear when there's any new development of symptoms. And we'll talk in more detail later in the call regarding the urgency of, of symptoms. But in general, it's always better to keep your healthcare team informed of anything new. Such items may include newest side effects to the therapy that you're on. And this is important because side effects may suggest a dosing alteration is needed. Anytime that you start a new medication, 
This is very important to communicate to your team, and particularly your pharmacist, as starting new therapies may indicate that there is a drug interaction at play, and so a pharmacist may need to perform an interaction checking at that time. Speaking of pharmacy, any issues within the pharmacy system should be communicated with your healthcare team. Issues such as inability to obtain your medication or coverage issues should truly be communicated as this may result in a lapse of your treatment schedule. As you know, MPNs are associated with many different types of symptoms, and Dr. Hobbs did a great job of reviewing these. But I think we're going to talk a little bit more in detail about this. It's, it can be very overwhelming at times to decipher what and when to report to your healthcare provider. Again, I can't emphasize this enough. More information is always better than too little. It may help to recall, again, some of the most common symptoms of NPN, and that includes fatigue, truly the most common. Itching, depression, dizziness, headaches, abdominal pain, feeling full quickly after meals, bone pain, night sweats, sexual dysfunction, along with an array of other potential symptoms. It's important to be observant as a patient and pay attention to what symptoms are particular to you. It is important to communicate these, your particular symptoms, to your doctor as they help to determine the medication efficacy and can suggest disease progression, which may require further evaluation and different types of therapy in general. <clears throat> Now, we all know we get to that doctor's office and we've forgotten all of our symptoms over the last three months, and it can be truly difficult to remember how you were feeling in the past when you're at that doctor appointment. So a very helpful technique is to keep a journal in between these doctor visits. Some points you may want to include are your energy level, your mood, your appetite and dietary intake your pain patterns and sleep patterns, as well as any activity level, and importantly, your other symptoms that we just talked about, such as difficulty concentrating, libido, bone pain, night sweats, weight loss, or truly anything that comes up as new to you. If you receive transfusions, you should truly be documenting these when you receive the transfusion and how many transfusions you have received since the last office visit, and bring this up to your healthcare provider. It is helpful to document your lifestyle habits, as this may help to flag symptom trigger patterns. Before your next doctor appointment, review this journal, and it will help to identify the items to discuss during the visit. This will be very helpful for you and your recall but also for your practitioner. They likely will be very appreciative of your mindfulness and your attention to detail. With this method, providers may more quickly identify side effect patterns, medication intolerances, and assess for disease progression. So it's very important to identify warning signs of a potential medical emergency and what to do. As you know, 
NPNs are often related to too many red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets. And this can lead to the formation of blood clots. Blood clots can be a medical emergency and are very important to recognize so they can be treated in a timely manner. Blood clots can lead to a variety of symptoms, which are truly dependent on the location in which they were formed. A common site of blood clot formation is within the veins of the legs, and this is called deep venous thrombosis, or DVT. This may manifest as symptoms of redness, swelling, and pain in the affected leg. Another place blood clots may form include the lungs. This is called a pulmonary embolus, or PE, and may be experienced as a rapid onset of shortness of breath or feeling winded. You may feel chest pain, and it may be associated with a cough or a sense of anxiety. We've been talking about clots within the veins, but clots may also form within the arteries, such as arteries within the heart or within the brain, and this can lead to heart attacks or strokes. Symptoms of chest pain that is worse with exertion, relieved by rest, and is often described as pressure or associated with a radiation down the arms or nausea or sweating is suggestive of a heart attack or a myocardial infarction. Symptoms such as sudden onset of weakness or difficulty speaking or walking or numbness and tingling may represent a stroke event. Symptoms of blood clots in general should be evaluated immediately and I can't emphasize this enough. This is not something to wait for evaluation for. This is typically evaluated in the emergency room setting. So we've been talking about blood clots, but on the flip side, within NPN patients, there may exist a tendency to bleed. This typically occurs in patients who have very high platelets, and when they're extremely high, this can paroxysmally lead to an increased risk of bleeding. This can lead to symptoms such as red urine or bleeding ulcers of the stomach with blackening of the stools. It may lead to ease of bruising, nosebleeds, and potential risk of post-surgical bleeding complications. So in review, the symptom burden associated with NPNs may be overwhelming and can vary profoundly amongst patients. It is of primary importance to share your symptom burden with your primary care provider or hematologist as this often dictates the therapeutic decisions and may change your doctor's treatment strategy. Symptoms that should prompt an immediate evaluation by a healthcare provider include chest pain, shortness of breath, sudden onset of weakness or difficulty walking, as these may predict a life-threatening blood clot event. Additionally, your physician should be notified if you develop a fever, particularly if you know you have low white blood cell count, if your leg becomes swollen, red, or tender, if you are for any reason unable to take your medications, or if you've developed worsening symptoms of any kind. So being assertive 
and educating yourself may improve your care and your quality of life. You are your own best patient advocate. So arm yourself with knowledge, as this knowledge truly is power. Thank you so much for your time, and thank you, Dr. Bensner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Gowan. That was really also extraordinary and outstanding, and lots of information, a lot of important information for everybody to kind of really um, use on the day-to-day -day care. So thank you so much, and also in interfacing with the healthcare team. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Victoria Puzo, and Ms. Puzo is an oncology social worker, and she's our online support group program coordinator at Cancer Care. And she will be addressing um, Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Puzo. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. Um, as stated, I'm a social worker here at Cancer Care, and I work with many people diagnosed with cancer and their loved ones. Um, we've talked a lot today about managing your care and quality of life, and I'm just going to take a few moments to speak about the importance of creating a support network as part of your care and how cancer care can be a part of your network. Um, cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer, and we have programs that include individual counseling in person in the New York area as well as over the telephone nationally support groups we provide in our office in New York City and over the phone nationally, and we also have online support groups provided nationally and internationally. All of our um, support groups are moderated by oncology social workers that can provide a lot of useful information. Um, we also have educational programs such as our Connect Education workshop we're listening to today, as well as practical help and assistance navigating the healthcare system. Um, we also offer some small, limited financial assistance depending on um, your diagnosis and your, um, your, your financial needs. And one of the um, biggest things that we were talking about today is maybe your communication with your doctor and advocating for yourself and communicating your um, side effects that you're experiencing. And something that our social workers can provide is maybe some coaching or guidance on how to open up those conversations if maybe you have been having trouble with that while you've been going to your appointments. Um, and also it's important to know that all of our oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and their family. And we're also trained to help cancer patients and their supports tackle the problems that accompany the disease, such as the financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and psychological impacting care. And adjusting to finding um, ways of coping with the diagnosis in all of the areas I mentioned is an important part of the healing process. Um, one of the biggest aspects of adjusting is maybe interacting with other people that have a similar diagnosis to you. And finding a support group, whether it's through cancer care or other organizations, is a really important part of, of growing your support network. You can connect with other people that are, have a similar diagnosis and can really understand the, the struggles and, and challenges that you're going through. And 
you know, having those kind of connections can help you feel less alone while you're going through your treatment process. So I encourage you to talk to an oncology social worker either at your treatment center or calling cancer care in order to maybe connect with a support group or an individual counselor in order to um, find some of the emotional and psychosocial support that you might need while you go through treatment. Um, at this time, Cancer Care offers an online support group for people diagnosed with blood cancers, including NPNs, um, and that's a, um, a support group you can find through cancercare.org, and it's called um, patients, uh, Patient Support Group for Blood Cancers. So you'd be able to interact with other people diagnosed with NPNs or other various blood cancers that might be going through similar types of treatment, including bone marrow transplants. Um, we also provide the patient and caregiver support groups in our, um, at our face-to-face -face, um, offices in the New York area and um, other caregiver support groups on our online platform. And if any of these kind of services interest you or even if you just want to talk briefly to a social worker, you can call our hotline at 1-800-813-HOPE or 1-800-813-4673 and visit our website at cancercare.org. And, and through you know, all of the information that you've taken in today, it's a lot to digest. Um, you might come back to some of the information in an hour or two and, and really have some additional questions. So some of our social workers can help you understand what some of that means. And if you have any questions, I encourage you to contact us through our hotline. I'm going to turn it over back to Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, uh, uh, Victoria. That was really outstanding and very informative about all the different services and also how much information there is to learn. And, and we expect people to have more and more questions. And our healthcare team have even said to you, ask us questions anytime you have them and be sure you bring your questions to us. So now we do have time for questions. I want to thank our speakers for really staying within time, so we actually now have a lot of time for questions. I'm going to ask um, Candace to bring all of our speakers on board so their lines are open. I'm going to ask um, also Candace to then explain to all of you how to queue for questions, and this is the time to ask your questions. Ask away. There is all questions are much welcome. So uh, Candace. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Kenneth F. Your line is now open. Oh, oh hi, Kenneth. Do you want to unmute your line so we can hear you? And please ask your question. Well, I have myelodysplasia rather than the myeloprolifera. In other words, my, I'm low blood counts rather than high blood counts. Uh, is that similar to what you're talking about, or have I got an entirely different condition? Well, thank you, Kenneth, for that question. I'm going to ask Dr. Hobbs if you could address this question in a general way, and then we'll, of course, advise um, Kenneth to go back to his treating healthcare team for the specifics but in terms of his own situation. Sure. Dr. Hobbs? Hi, Ken. Um, thank you so much for your question. So the myelodysplastic syndromes in general are kind of a different group of disorders that come from the bone marrow. And like you correctly said in your question, instead of having a lot of blood counts, your problem um, is having too little blood counts. So although sometimes the MPN can turn into um, diseases that look similar to MDS, they're generally uh, separate conditions. 
And some of the treatments, I'm sorry. Most of the treatments that I spoke about in general um, don't, don't apply to the myelodysplastic syndromes. So, Kenneth, you have a lot of information, but probably go back to your team for your specific situation because they may not apply to you. They obviously are different than what we talked about today. But happy to have you on the call. Thank you. Our next question. As a reminder, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question at this time, please press star, then the number one key. And there's a question from one of our online participants. Um, so it's from uh, uh, Janet. Um, I want to stay active even though, even though I'm undergoing treatment, but my energy levels are always low and I feel sluggish. What can I do to improve this? So I'm going to ask um, uh, Dr. Gowan to start with this and also Dr. Hobbs to add. This is a, a great question and one that I know people struggle with a lot. So, Dr. Gowan? Oh, thank you so much, Janet, for asking this very, very important question. And I want to give you great credit for asking that because it shows initiative, that you want to get out there and you want to be active. And I, I can't emphasize this enough, that no matter how you're feeling, that there is great benefit to becoming active. And there are alternative kind of therapies that you can do when you're not feeling well. Some great options include some mindfulness movement options. And when I say that, I mean things such as yoga, tai chi, qigong. These are ways to get moving that are very slow-paced, and they offer the additional benefit of a meditative kind of practice to kind of address your mind wellness as well. And so I, I typically really reach for those when patients are feeling sluggish and they're, and they're not feeling well enough to get out there and go for a jog or participate in an aerobic session. But, and it's also very nice to have the option to do this within your own home. And so um, I personally have a clinical trial in yoga from a online um, video library. And so there are these online libraries that you can access in the comfort of your own home on a computer. And so this may be of interest to you to kind of look into these kind of supportive options to, to do a, a therapy such as yoga. Excellent. Thank you. And um, Dr. Hobbs, do you wish to add anything? Uh, no, I think that, that um, that's great. I think um, including those types of um, activities in, in the patient's lives can be very, very helpful to increasing your energy. And the other thing that I would just say is whatever you do, do a little bit at a time. Um, start by, you know, going for a small walk and little by little increasing what you do. Um, and then if you have certain joint pains or joint aches or that kind of thing, physical therapy may also be, be helpful to um, kind of giving you some guidance as to how to get more, more active. But that, that's great that you want to be active during your, your treatment. And I'm just going to ask Victoria if you would comment, because I know in our support groups this is an issue that comes up a lot in terms of energy levels and um, how people cope with it or just talking about it with other people about that support network, if you want to comment on that as well. Yeah, I think um, even just finding that common ground um, with other people in a support group, sometimes um, people that are going through it right then and there might be able to give suggestions on what they've done maybe to um, increase their energy or to maybe overcome that while they're going through treatment. Um, you know, some people even just take up um, certain hobbies like, um, you know, gardening or something that they enjoy that you may not look at as, 
physical activity, but it really does at least get you moving and get the blood flowing. So there are a lot of people that do things like that. And then there's also a lot of um, nationally, a lot of organizations that um, do um, low-impact fitness classes for free for people that are going through um, treatment. I know Gilda's Club um, is a national organization that does um, low-impact yoga classes and things like that. So that's another thing that you might um, want to look into if it's something um, offered in your area that can get you, get you active without, um, you know, sapping too much of your energy. Excellent. Thank you. And we have another question from one of our online participants, Laura. I keep having hot flashes at night that are making me lose sleep. I have taken to snacking a lot at night now. Do you have any advice on how to curb my nighttime appetite? So, uh, Dr. Gowen, do you want to address that one first? And then I'll probably ask Dr. Hobbs as well. <laughs> Important questions. These are great questions and questions that often, you know, that this is a wonderful venue to bring them up. So. Mm -hmm. That's a really great question, Laura. Thank you for asking it. And so hot flashes in the evening, um, it's important to differentiate hot flashes from night sweats. And so is it associated with, you know, drenching of your pillow and your clothes as well? And if so, then that perhaps may be more related to your underlying diagnosis. Now, if it's truly hot flashes, and I, I don't know how old you are, Laura, but perhaps this is more menopausally related, in which case you may want to talk with your primary care provider and let them know that it's interfering with your sleep and perhaps you would like to investigate some treatments for that. In regards to the appetite curb, what I like to utilize is some chamomile teas or like a hot tea to kind of fill the belly, soothe, um, soothe your nerves and, and help ease you back into sleep. And, and that can actually be very helpful. Even a, a ginger tea, a chamomile, something like that might be uh, helpful. If that's not enough, then I do recommend a, a snack that's both um, containing protein and a low glycemic carbohydrate, as this can be um, helpful to kind of fill the belly and uh, keep your sugars stable throughout the night. And Dr. Hobbs, do you want to add anything to that? Or? Uh, I mean, I think um, Dr. Gowan gave an excellent answer. The only thing that I can add to that would be that humans are creatures of habit, and so the more you do something, obviously your body is going to get more used to that. Um, so I think that slowly getting your body into um, a different routine of eating and drinking um, can help you eliminate the habit that you, it sounds like you've started to form about eating at night. So if you have a healthy, balanced diet during the day, um, then hopefully you won't wake up or, or, or have the issues at night of feeling, of feeling hungry. Um, in addition to that, like um, Dr. Gowan said, it's important to try to distinguish whether or not these are hot flashes or, or night sweats. And, and, and um, if they are night sweats, there are some medications like Jacopy, for example, that can help with that or um, you may need to consider um, a treatment for the hot flashes with a drug um, such as uh, an antidepressant. Sometimes those can be helpful for hot flashes. Excellent. Thank you. And we have an, another question from one, someone who's anticipating the summer months coming up, although it's different parts in the country and world, of course, there are different time zones and weather. But what can I do to stay healthy, as healthy as possible during my treatment period, especially as the hot summer months are approaching? So, um, and we probably should include, I guess, skin care as well in terms of sun exposure. But if, um, Dr. Hobbs, do you want to start with that one? 
Sure. So um, great question. Thank you for asking that. I think there are several different things that I could say um, related to that. The first thing um, Dr. Mesner um, hinted at, it's very important to um, take care of your skin during the summer months and making sure that you are protected with um, sunscreen when you go outside, especially if um, you are on medications that increase your sensitivity to the sun or they can increase the risk of having um, cancers. So if you're taking hydroxyurea, for example, it is definitely very important that when you're outside, um, you're well covered and you have sunscreen. In addition, uh, I'm not sure what your specific symptoms may be, but if you're somebody that has itching, um, being outside in the sun and getting sweaty, et cetera, maybe triggers for, for making the itching worse. And so certainly one thing to, to, to try to avoid in the summer is being outside when it's the hottest periods of the day. And so I would encourage you to try to go outside more during the early morning or, or, or later in the day. But um, certainly, as we mentioned before, even though it may be harder to exercise because of the weather or being outside because of the weather, um, I'd encourage you to try to um, try to remain active and find those times where it would be the best time for you to be outside. Thank you. And, and Dr. Gowan, do you want to add anything? And so, you know, I am an integrative medicine uh, specialist, and so I always think of, you know, every question in the context of how to promote wellness. And so, you know, the summertime is a great time and a great opportunity to eat seasonally. So it's a time of year where all these beautiful fruits and vegetables become available, and they're cheaper at the supermarket, and they're so tasty. And so I really encourage this as a time of year to venture outside of your norm to really try to eat the spectrum of the colors available to you, eat the rainbow, and try to enhance your diet um, during the summer months. And then another point is just to stay hydrated. That certainly, and depending on where you live geographically, you can become very easily dehydrated. And so just to really make, keep an eye on how much you drink throughout the day and, and maybe drink, reach for that extra glass of water. Excellent. And before I do want to comment in terms of the support groups and people talking about summer and challenges poses for them in terms of just or meeting in the group or the online groups, is that kind of a helpful forum to, to further get support for this? Yeah, well, I think um, something that we talk about, especially it's nice on the online um, groups because it is similar to this call, international and national um, folks. So we have people from all over the country and all over the world. So everybody is in kind of different climates, and you get to hear about um, you know all the different weather things going on. So you know it can be um, kind of a nice time of year when if you are in a place that has the four seasons, where it starts to get warmer outside, it kind of boosts your mood and things like that. But I think just being cognizant of, of how you feel and if it, um, if it gets to you too much, then just knowing when to go outside and when not to if it's, you know, having extremely high time between like 10 and 2 or something like that. But, you know, I think, um, again, people really connect on that thing about the weather. So it's the same kind of small talk that you might have at the grocery store on the support groups, you might talk about the weather and how it's affecting your symptoms and, and what people do um, to, to deal with that. So that's another good way to connect with other people that are going through treatment. Excellent. Thank you. And we have another question from one of our online participants, really great um, online participants today with good questions um, uh, from uh, 
Richard, um, should I take vitamin supplements? Do they provide any benefits? So, uh, Dr. Um, Hobbs, could you start with that one, and then Dr. Gowan? Sure. Um, thank you for, for that question. It's definitely a question that I get asked often. Um, in general, I think that it's probably safe to take multivitamins or vitamin D. Um, vitamin D has been, has been shown to have a lot of um, benefits for the body, um, multivitamins not so much. One thing that I, that I like to tell my patients is, you know, when you get a new diagnosis or when you're dealing with a diagnosis and many times you have to take a lot of other medications and pills and it's hard to remember to take all these pills at the right time, adding more things to that can sometimes be difficult. Um, and in addition, just kind of going back and forth from home to the doctor, et cetera, there's a lot of costs involved in that as well. And so what I many times tell my patients is, although hopefully one day we'll have, you know, better research about all the vitamins and how um, they can improve your health, right now we don't have that much research to say which supplements and vitamins are, are actually helpful. And so many times these supplements can be very expensive, um, and many times we don't know actually how these supplements may interact with the uh, medications that you're already on. So I would encourage you to be open with your doctor and ask him those questions and there may be something that you're very interested in or want to take um, just to make sure that they're not interacting with the medicines that you're taking. Um, and I'd encourage you to try to, you know, limit the amount of supplements that you take because they can be very expensive and there's really, many of them don't have a lot of proven efficacy. Um, and uh, the last thing that I'll say is I think the most important thing, and Dr. Gowan sort of hinted at this before, was try to eat healthy and have a healthy lifestyle. I think those things oftentimes are much more important and much more beneficial than, than having the supplements. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And Dr. Gowan, do you want to add to that? Thank you, Dr. Hobbs. I agree with everything you said. And I, I, I want to, again, echo the importance of the diet and that what supplements are really are it's it's us in a scientific lab kind of boiling down these plants and isolating one particular part of that plant. And what's sad about that is that there's all these other beautiful components of food that you're losing in that process. There's all of the phytonutrients that have health-promoting qualities within the actual food that that supplement came from. And so I always recommend that eating for health is much better than supplements, eating a wide variety of foods, eating the rainbow once again. So you're getting all of that supplements, but it's just coming from a natural source. Having said that, there are some things that are difficult to obtain. And so I agree, vitamin D is we're all as a nation chronically deficient in vitamin D. And we also want to be safe out in the sun, and that's partly how we're getting the vitamin D. And so most of my patients are on some form of vitamin D supplementation, and you can be very scientific about this. You can get a vitamin D level and have it become adequate with certain amount of supplementation, and you can work with your primary care provider or your hematologist in, in trying to obtain adequate vitamin D levels uh, via supplementation. And another supplement that I routinely recommend is an omega fatty acid supplement. And this is often recommended because it's hard to eat that much 
fish to get the amount that you need per week. Um, you can do this by eating salmon, a freshly caught salmon, a couple to three times per week, or you can take an omega fatty acid supplement daily. And there's a lot of benefits to omega fatty acids, and one of which is a cardiovascular health, which is very important in myeloproliferative disease, as we know there's a higher risk of cardiovascular uh, complications. So thank you for that really great question. Excellent. This is, this is really an extraordinary call. Our speakers are great, but I, and that questions are terrific, and the answers are heavily helpful, so thank you. And, um, and then we have another question from um, Eleanor. Since beginning treatment, I have had a persistent headache that does not seem to go away. Is it safe to take so many headache pain pills, or is it something I will have to cope with? Um, Dr. Gowan, do you want to go with that one first? Sure. And so depending on what therapy you started, this certainly can be a, a side effect associated. Um, sometimes with side effects, after an initial week or two of getting used to the therapy, that side effect may go away. Um, if not, you may want to talk with your primary care um, your provider or your hematologist, and, and maybe that medication is not the best for you. Um, the other, depending on your diagnosis, uh, it may be a marker, harbinger for poor hematocrit control, and so just being sure that your hematocrit is appropriate and controlled if you do have PV. And then uh, finally, I think that in general, if your liver function is normal, that Tylenol preparations are very safe to take in treatment of headache. And Dr. Hobbs, do you want to add anything to that? Dr. Gowan um, said everything that I would say, and, and I would just like to, to use it as an opportunity to emphasize how important it is to communicate with your healthcare team. Um, some of these side effects we can manage, and some of them may be things um, that we can't, but I think asking the question to your doctor um, about why you may have this headache is really important. And this may have been addressed by Dr. Gowan, and, but is that um, a, a issue of a persistent headache a possible side effect of some of the treatment? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, depending on what, you know, there's headache is actually probably the most common side effect of any drug out there, but certainly um, with ruxolitinib, mm -hmm. hydroxyurea, that's a common uh, side effect. Thank you so much. Um, and um, we have another um, uh, question from uh, Jacqueline. Um, I often have nausea and vomiting from my chemotherapy and the antimatics don't seem to be working, is there anything else that can be done for me? So Dr. Hobbs, could you begin by addressing this question in a general way? And of course, Jacqueline, I do recommend that you go over this sure. with your healthcare team, but still, Dr. Hobbs, if you could say, give some general guidelines around this. Sure. Jacqueline, thank you for your question, and I'm sorry to hear that you are having a hard time with your, with your treatment. Uh, it's difficult to know, you know why you're having these um, symptoms without knowing a little bit more about the medications that you're receiving. But what I would say, just as a general um, general re recommendation, would be there are really many different types of um, antiemetics or medications that can help control nausea and vomiting. Um, and so if the, the medication that you're taking right now isn't helping, I'd encourage you to ask your, your doctor or your um, healthcare team um, for recommendation about other medications or increasing the dose. Sometimes, um, you know, patients will have medication at home and then maybe they're only taking it once a day or, or you may be taking it um, when you already have um, had the feeling of nausea for, for some time. Sometimes the best time to take the antiemetics is 
Um, if you know that you're going to feel, you know, nauseated at a certain point of the day or just as you're starting to feel those symptoms, those are usually the best times to take those medications and not to wait until you're, um, you know, already um, sick. So those would be some, some general things. You know, there, there may be other medications. Take it um, as frequently as, your, as the prescription allows you to take it. Um, and then again, you know, if this is something that you just developed this nausea and vomiting and you were doing fine before, that may be a sign, you know, that either this medication isn't working for you anymore um, or, or that it's time to switch to another medication or to change the dose. Uh, so I think it's very important, and I hope you feel that you have somebody to call um, in your healthcare team to, to help you address these issues. Thank you so much. That's so important. And um, Dr. Gowan, do you want to add um, to this as well? Yeah, the only other thing, and I agree with everything Dr. Hobbs just said, is that you want to be sure that there's not something more serious going on, and it's, again, hard to know, you know, what your underlying disease is and, and everything that's going on with you, but if it's associated with anything that um, is atypical, such as uh, changes in vision, um, some numbness and tingling or of your extremities or difficulty uh, walking or, or something like that, and certainly it's, it's something you want to communicate urgently to your primary team and may be more representative of, of a central nervous system kind of process. Um, and I agree that, you know, there's a lot of anti-emetics out there. And so it really is just finding the right combination for you and the right timing of that combination to get management of your nausea. And very often employing another team is helpful in managing this. And when I'm having difficulty with my patients and I can't get control of nausea, sometimes I reach out to my colleagues in palliative medicine, which is another kind of supportive care team who focuses just on symptom management. And they sometimes really have some great ideas on how to manage nausea. So you may want to ask your treating hematologist if that's an option to kind of get their expertise in managing your nausea. And then finally, just from a um, more natural approach that uh, ginger teas are sometimes helpful, and so you can make your own with uh, fresh ginger from the grocery store and steep it um, on the stove and sip on that. And then also keeping a food diary. Are there some actual dietary triggers to your nausea and vomiting that maybe you can identify? But a really, really important question, and again, I'm, I'm very sorry that you're uncomfortable, and hopefully you can find some relief with some of these techniques. Yes, I have to say um, I share um, Dr. Hobbs and Dr. Gowan's concern that you're having these symptoms, Jacqueline, and um, we're going to reach out to you after the call. I do also want to remind you and let everyone know that we, it is, of course, uh, the program isn't happening until May 23rd, but we do have a program specifically, a workshop like this, but it's focusing on chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, which is really what you're, perhaps what you're describing or experiencing, although there could be other things as well. And I, that might be a useful uh, program for you to be aware of. And we also have it, um, one that we've done uh, last year, so that you could also listen to it, um, a, um, a previous program on that topic as well. Um, I actually just want to thank all of our speakers today. You've been extraordinary. 
and to be matched by our participants who really asked us really great questions um, that really allowed our speakers to then further elaborate on a number of different issues and concerns and points that you all have. Now, this is a one-hour workshop, of course, and it hasn't ended yet, but I do want to acknowledge that there are other questions that you haven't got to ask, or you may have questions that you are going to come up for you in the next couple of days, and so I want you to know what to do with those questions. So I want to start with that first. Um, so if you have any further medical-focused questions, I would say I always recommend that you call the National Cancer Institute. Their information specialist will help you with those questions. Um, and their number is 1-800-422-6237 or 1-800-422-6237. It's a wonderful resource for any question regarding your health, your questions about um, your um, you know, your, your uh, MPN, your, your, any of the concerns you may have in terms of your treatment or side effects or aches and pains that you're having, that's a great resource. If, on the other hand, you wish to talk to one of our oncology social workers at Cancer Care, then I would suggest you would call Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673. And I would like you to actually know that they're here to help you with your practical and financial concerns, with counseling or support, a chance to talk with one of them about your concerns, um, with your joining, of course, a support group, a telephone or online support group. And also, you also can, of course, participate in more of these workshops. We have quite a few coming up. I'll mention, I'll highlight a few particular ones. We have lots of them coming up. Um, and um, we have also wonderful publications. And you can also, for our international participants, they wish to call, visit our website, or all of you may, at www.cancercare.org, where you can pose a question or connect up with someone here. Um, as a way of getting connected to one of our oncology social workers as well. Now, we do have some programs coming up. So I said this is part uh, two of a three-part series. So part three is on April 13th, and it's the role of nutrition, exercise, and meditation in coping with myeloproliferative neoplasms. And indeed, you had some questions today that were kind of a forerunner to that program. That program will only focus on uh, nutrition, exercise, and meditation. And um, so that's, that's a wonderful program to be aware of. Also, for caregivers on the call today, and I know there are many caregivers on the call today, or people who care about loved ones with MPN, we're having a program on April 11th on coping with the stress of caregiving when your loved one has um, polycythema vera, but it's really more focused on caregiving, so that might be of use to you. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. We don't want anyone to leave this call thinking that you're alone. We want you to know that you're now part of the cancer care community and that you can call us or email us at any time, and we're here to help you. I want to thank you all, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may all disconnect. Have a great day, everyone.